Welcome to the School Leaders Podcast. My name is Dr. Gastrit Harrigan, the podcast for current and emerging school leaders, those who support and supervise them. You will hear from passionate educational leaders who are transforming their schools, communities, and creating positive outcomes for students. I will also share my personal reflections and tips from over 15 years as a school leader. Together, we will talk about how to level up our schools and leadership practices. Hello, welcome to the School Leaders Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gastrid Harrigan. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to encourage all of our listeners to join the School Leaders Podcast community on Facebook. There, we continue and extend our conversation from the episodes. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you could be notified whenever a new episode is released. Today, I have a special guest, Zach Groeschel. He's an instructional coach in the Seattle area. He's also an experienced elementary teacher. Zach holds a PhD in education and presents often about cognitive science and educational research. Zach's recent contribution include evidence-based presentation for Think Forward Educators and Drive's Cognitive Science Network. He also just came out with a book on assessment and feedback for the, with the title, Amplifying Instructional Design. Zach also hosts a podcast called Progressively Incorrect and maintain an active professional presence on Twitter. You can contact and reach him at Mr. Zach G. And he has a blog, educationricksaw.com. Join me in welcoming Zach to the School Leaders Podcast. Thank you for having Zach, me. Tell us, yeah. bit, tell us a little bit about yourself, Zach. Well, um, as you said, I'm an instructional coach. Uh, in the Seattle area, uh, a lot of people don't really know what that means. Like what an instructional coach is not a lot of districts have, have the same model, but basically in one middle school, uh, I am there as an instructional leader to provide feedback and mentoring of new teachers as well as old teachers. I'm in classrooms, I'm observing I'm giving feedback and going through sort of coaching cycles with teachers to try to improve achievement. And for us, uh, a big focus is improving classroom uh, management and behavior. Uh, so that's that's what I do. Uh, other than that, though, as you said, I, I'm involved with a lot of different projects. I love cognitive science and uh, research-informed uh, pedagogy. So I'm often blogging and talking about that. Okay, that's awesome. You know, you are correct. Each district and county have different models for instructional coaches, um, literacy coaches, we call them down here. Uh, we have math, science, and literacy. So each district has their different model and use it differently. But talk to us a little bit about your journey, because I read about that you, you started teaching abroad. And uh, so talk to us about your journey teaching abroad into becoming um an instructional coach? And what are some of the lessons you glean from that experience? Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I never really intended to uh, leave and, and go overseas and teach in private schools. I was really sort of invested in this community here, working in public schools. I was actually working in a Native American tribal school uh, in this area. And I really sort of became part of that community. But a friend out of nowhere who is living in Vietnam and teaching in an international school 
uh, contacted me and was like, you should come out here. By the way, we're getting paid uh, a bit more. Uh, I have two hours of planning a day. Uh, my kids are angels, right? <laughs> they do exactly what I say. And um, you get to see Vietnam. You get to, you get to travel on the weekends, uh, go on you know, spring break, go to different countries uh, uh, around the area in Asia. And so for seven years, I sort of stuck to, to, to that, working in private international schools, serving communities that are full of like sort of wealthy parents, uh, diplomats, uh, business people, children of that uh, type of crowd. And I never intended to, to leave that because it was so fun. Hence the name my blog, educationrickshaw.com. I was living in Sudan and there are yellow rickshaws uh, everywhere. Uh, but I returned and I'm back uh, here be mainly because of COVID. And I'm loving my job right now. I'm loving, I'm loving just sort of being uh figuring out American education once once again. <laughs> you know, thank you for sharing that. You, you are correct. And you know, as a foreigner myself, uh, it's always interesting comparing the US educational system to other educational systems across the globe as it relates to the competencies. And also, I'm also I'm always intrigued uh how we take the inter international model. I um and we use that for uh, mainly our advanced kids. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you know, uh, instructional coaches play a critical role uh, in our schools. I have a literacy coach, I have a math coach, uh, and I have uh, other instructional support that that also do one-on-one -on -one support. And oftentimes, principals and school leaders struggle to not only support them, to help them become better. Uh, instructional leaders to support in the classroom. Um, we're going to dig, and to all of you listening, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into, into that. But from your experience as a, as a current instructional coach, how can principals and school leaders be themselves better instructional leaders to support these instructional coaches? Right. Well, we're in a really weird time with instructional coaching. I feel uh, there it, it's a mod. I mean, it's a, it's a role that's being increasingly adopted across you know, many, many different schools are adopting these. And then when you have an instructional coach, what do you do with them? It's sort of like with when the devices came out, right? It was like, everyone's going to have an iPad. And then all of a sudden it was up to uh, the people implementing it to figure out what are we going to do with these things? I, I have a hard time with right now, uh, the current status quo and in instructional coaching that we focus a lot on uh, sort of the instructional coaches generic what i call generic leadership skills we're excited about like um uh we want to make them better problem solvers we hope that if they use this instructional coaching cycle better they will address a lot more problems in in their contexts there's an issue with this and the issue is that just like a doctor needs to have huge deep funds of knowledge about many different ailments and diseases in, in order to diagnose problems in their contexts, instructional coaches need to have a really deep knowledge of how learning happens, how and what what teaching can support really great learning. And we and, and we get into this problem where we're, we're trying to train these instructional coaches like myself to analyze problems, to uh, to meet with teachers and facilitate discussions around teaching. But many instructional coaches don't really know what to look for when they get to classrooms. They don't really know 
what to say when they get in those meetings. And they don't really have a foundation. They're not, they're not really grounding their decision-making in evidence in, 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 in how learning happens, cognitive science. So for me, I think a starting point, a better starting point than maybe some of this leadership stuff is, is, is around um, cognitive science. Uh, how, how does working memory work? Why is it so limited? Why are students, how do students get overloaded quickly and how can we prevent that? What is retrieval practice? How can we get students to cement those understandings deeper and not forget uh, as quickly? How do we interrupt that learning curve? So this is what I do talking to my uh, mentees, to my teachers, is I'm looking for certain things because I come with assumptions from, from the evidence. If I could change anything about instructional coaching, it would be that that instructional coaches become experts in how learning happens and how to help that learning happen. You know, it's, it's critical. You just said a whole lot um, that instructional coaches need to be experts uh, in understanding how learning happened. What are your recommendations for teacher, for principals and districts, especially districts like big districts like myself, like the district that we are in and across the nation? To have a lot of instructional coaches and often the only requirement is you probably go through a couple of meetings and you were a good teacher. So how, how do we scale things up and build capacity, build our coaches knowledge and help them become an expert in order to uh, really help teachers in the classroom? Well, I first will say, I do not think a couple of years in the classroom is enough. Uh, <laughs> and when I, when I started instructional coaching, I was eight years a teacher and I felt like I had nothing. I didn't have what I needed and I probably should have stayed in the classroom longer. I got out and now there's no looking back, but uh, really they, they need to have at least five, six, hopefully 10 years of experience. But that experience, we know what confirmation bias is, right? That experience doesn't, isn't everything, right? If I was training instructional coaches uh, right now, I would get them in a, in a reading group, reading something like Daniel Willingham's, why don't students like school, which is like a, like a primer chapter by chapter of principles of how learning happens. I would, I, I would start with there, I, but there's so many, we're in like a cognitive science revolution right now. Uh, there's so many resources we could go to. One is how do we catalyze learning by, by Peps McRae? Uh, and another one that I really think people uh, ought to read is How Learning Happens by uh, Kirshner and Hendrick. These books can be really easy. If we're already at a stage where we have instructional coaches, really easy book club starters and then the, the principles themselves, even though the, the role is expanding for principles beyond what I think is even appropriate, principles themselves have have gotta have gotta lead that that change. They want their instructional coaches to be upskilling and learning about uh, about cognitive science, about evidence based practices. And I think what you just said is key, right? Uh, we as principals and school leaders need to take the time to become better experts in effective instruction and how student learn. And what you just said is is, is critical. Uh, I know uh, for us, uh, every other week as an instructional team, we do walks together. And, and the idea of these instructional or learning walks is that, number one, we are cal calibrating what I'm seeing, what the instructional is seeing, and we were returning back. And, and for us, it's not just about one teacher. It's about trend across the sc school. And it's, it's about also ensuring that my coaches who are in the classroom coaching and modeling for teachers, we see the same thing. And I'm not always right, but at least we see and calibrate and get on the same page. 
we, and have the same look force. And from there, use that data to drive uh, PD, to drive instruction. Um, I will also find books that, that, you know, as a team, maybe we have a gap in this area and we do book studies. So that way we can fill in those gaps to better uh, support um, really the instruction that's happening in the classroom. Because we know the research is clear, right? That the, that instructional leadership coupled with effective instruction in the classroom improves student learning. And so uh, for leaders like me who work in urban districts, who who kids come in, I'm at the secondary level, who are reading really two, three years behind, it's imperative that the adults, right, from the coach, from the school leaders, the assistant principals, uh, deans, down to the teacher are implementing effective leaders. So with, with that said, with principals and school leaders have to be instructional leaders, how do you see and, and what are some of the ways really um, leaders, principals can really work with their coaches to help them become better coaches. You earlier you talked about the coaching cycle. How, how does um, how can what do you recommend to school leaders that are listening uh, to be to help their coach become better coaches? Because at the end of the day, we need to build capacity in the classroom with our teachers. Yeah, well, I mean, this might sound sound uh, small, but it's 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 probably everything. I would really start as a principal with making sure that my coach is active in the building. <laughs> uh, the first complaint I always hear, because I've switched schools a couple of times. The first thing I hear when I come into teachers is, hey, that last uh, gal or guy bef before, they were they were stuck in their office. Like I never got any help from anyone, right? I really do think instructional coaches can't forget like, what was your workload when you were a teacher? Try to replicate that as an instructional coach. I try to leave dehydrated and sweating just like I did when I was a teacher, right? Get, I mean, get out there and get into classrooms. That's what my principal wants me to do. And it's, she's, she's amazing. Uh, I, I hope she listens to this, but you know, Zach, get out there and get into classrooms. And we sometimes bump into each other into her observations all the time. We're suddenly dual observing because we're, we're, we're in classrooms. Another thing I think we need to be wary of is that many instructional coaching models, uh, have teacher coach confidentiality. And I would hope that if you're in that model where the principal is not supposed to really infringe on that confidentiality that that's that that confidentiality is kept and that it's held sacred for example my principal and i she says how how are things going and i'll talk in general about some things i'm seeing patterns but i'm not going to name drop mr smith and uh and miss so and so because those discussions we're having those observations are it's important to maintain those relationships within this model. Now, if you have a different model where it's more directive coaching, where the coaching is really trying to really turn around to school quickly, I can imagine that the the coach and the and the and the and the leadership are going to share notes more closely. But in in my particular situation, the teachers need to know that they can trust uh, that their discussions are safe with me, and I'm not going to go tell on them, right? And I guess I guess if I could put a third thing in there for leaders is allow your coach to lead up. Like I, I really do lead upwards. And I say like, I think this will work. I'll give you an example in our sixth grade hall this year. The students were just coming in sixth grades. The first year for us, they were coming in really squirrely. They, they were sort of COVID babies. Right. And 
they they really did not know how to treat the school right. They were bumping in each other in the hallways, smashing into each other, abusing the bathrooms. The first thing that you know that I really thought to do was I led up, I went to my principal and I said, look, we've got to do something. We implemented because of because of me having that trust and that relationship with the principal, we implemented a system basically where the teacher would signal outwards when students, when their class was basically out of control and our dean and our, me could come and intervene. And that quick intervention, the students sensing that they are, uh, their behavior cannot go above a certain level, <laughs> just with a flip of a card on a, on a window is how we did it, really brought down some of that energy. And now our sixth grade group, our cohort is, is, is performing really well. But that was me kind of stepping from that instructional coach into a, a building wide capacity, kind of building wide leader and the principal saying, hey, Zach, roll with this. You got to fix sixth grade floor. I think that's important. There, there are two things you said that that connected and resonated with me. You talked about the that coaches should have trust and in, in, in confidentiality. And I think that's very important that as you coach your teachers, that they are able to trust that if they are vulnerable with you, they are working in a specific area that they trust that, that you're not going to run to the principal, you know, their struggle uh, or areas that they are really are struggling in. And, and, and I think for all the leaders listening, that's very important. I often say to my coaches, listen, whatever the conversation dialogue you have a teacher, respect that confidentiality, because that's where the, you got to build that trust and that culture of learning and really I like to say messiness of learning. So that way there are things sometimes when I, when I remember when I was in the classroom and often they would say, well, you know, they'll come in and they'll see something going well, but often is, is I've been trying that strategy. I've been trying it until I fine tune it for my style, uh, personality. And for those kids I have, because some strategy work well in the morning after lunch in the afternoon, <laughs> it may not work as well. So I think having that trust is very uh, very important. The other thing you, you indicate is leading up. And I think that's very important, being able to step up and uh, take advantage and, and see where areas of struggles uh, and, and lead to fix and address um, those specific areas. Now, with that said, when I got there, uh, you know, students without learning, uh, achievement was low to where now it's over 89 percentage um, uh, graduation. We move from the teens to 89, over 89 percentage points. Uh, we are we have an effective rating uh, with the state based on the test scores. Uh, but when I came in, it was un unsatisfactory and we had to make some changes. So I value and respect that coaches must, and, and for every coach listening, develop that trust and confidentiality to coach their teachers in a safe space. My question for you, Zach, is when when is the right time or the when is it okay when you're working with a teacher and they are not performing you know, um, and that you need to uh, step out and 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 say hey to to your leadership to your principal to your AP that hey listen you may need to take a look at this classroom uh, because kids are not learning and in this class is not moving based on our instructional focus when, when do you think is the is is the um, when it is safe to really step out and inform your administrator. Well, I mean, you know, before anyone does anything that's listening to this, that, you know, that goes against their school policies, look at the, look at your district school policies first. Right. But for us, really, we, uh, I, I feel it's appropriate to pass on that information when the classroom is not safe. 
right? And we we have that situation all the time. I feel like I'm in I'm in the same school as you were before you arrived, <laughs> right? We're in a situation, a turnaround situation where things can get out of hand quickly. And one class in one hallway can make get send the message to everyone in the hallway that it's okay to mess around with your learning, right? Uh, and we can have situations where an explosion of students are coming, you know, f- are coming out of the this one classroom and it's contaminating basically an entire section of the school, right? So in these cases, I mean, I I may not even say the teacher's name, but the principal will know who I'm talking about, right? I will say we really got to f- work on these two classrooms in this hallway. I've been in there every day. And at this point, right, I'm not teaching this class. I cannot, I, they may respect my authority because I have a radio, but the minute I leave, it, it's, it's returning and, 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 and the behavior is just, it's not stopping. Well, right down the hallway, you have another teacher who is handling their business and with the same kids. So I, 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 this might be a teacher capacity issue. And right now I can't solve it. That's happened several times, you know? I do value like you like you answer into all the coaches and other leaders. You, you do you do need to maintain and help your coaches maintain because I often say to my coaches, don't don't don't, don't come and tell me what's happening really before you tell me how often you've been in the classroom, like you mentioned, Zach, what are the kind of support? Have you been in there and model for the teacher? Have you met one-on-one? Don't just have them come to your office. Go and live inside their classroom, making sure they're getting the support that they need. Because at the end of the day, it's about that support. It's about the coaching, using that instructional coaching cycle to ensure that we are improving and providing the necessary um, support. And at the end of that, you mentioned building teacher capacity. That's the key thing. Now, uh, you just came out with a book, Amplify Learning, a collaborative, um, a global collaborative, Amplifying Instructional Design. Share uh, with us some of the main points or the message uh, from the book or from the chapter that you wrote. Right. My my chapter was all about feedback and assessment, which really which really go hand in hand. And I'm working I'm working on a lot of different writing projects. This one was super fun. Um, basically before I started writing it, I, I knew a lot about, um, how we take in information and, and, and a lot of about, a lot of stuff about cognitive load theory, but I was asked by a, by a friend, if I could write this chapter uh, about feedback and assessment. And I said, yes, <laughs> and it allowed me to take a big deep dive into how, how we best give feedback to, to students. Um, a lot of feedback we give to students is is very corrective sort of yes and no sort of a check or a minus you're wrong or you're right and that feedback does work uh it's just not very it's not very effective because the student doesn't come away knowing why they did what they did wrong right they don't they don't know why it's sort of like a computer-based program saying yes or no they know they got it wrong they'll try not to get it wrong again but they don't know what they need to do next time to not get it wrong um, so a lot of times we need to think about feedback on a on a sort of a, a spectrum of very sort of low level corrective feedback, yes or no feedback, all the way up to what they would call an elaborative or an epistemic um, level of feedback. So I try to coach teachers that when we're giving that feedback verbally, right, we're we're just we're putting in there a little bit of why why this is that that it is, and maybe even asking a question like like. I see that you did this. Why did you do that? And in dialogue with the with the student, what comes out is that they didn't understand what they were doing. And you can then provide some of that those inputs. 
right? Um, so, so feedback being on a scale like that. Another thing about feedback, which is quite interesting, is that a lot of people think about it uh, like it, it, it's great if there's just more, right? We're just going to give as much of it as possible, and then something will stick. Really, with feedback, the, the evidence can be negative and it can be positive. We really need to think about feedback in terms of, is it moving the learner forward? A lot of our feedback is just about improving their product. It's about like, like take, an, take, a, take a five paragraph essay, for example. Uh, I can put a bunch of marks on a five paragraph essay. The student can then rewrite it with the exact marks that I put on. Their paper will improve, but do they know how to write better as a result of that experience? Probably not, right? So we we really have to shift our mindset around feedback that maybe more it, more is is great, but that's not really the solution. The important part is, is the learner taking this themselves, taking it to heart and using it for something new? And um, so a lot of the chapters around that kind of discussion, how to how to build in and embed a steady diet of feedback that is epistemic, elaborative, and moves students forward as opposed to kind of just throw in lots of feedback and sort of lower level corrective feedback. You know, that, that that's critical. Feedback is crucial. And I think John Hattie um, and his um, various books and research talks about the importance of feedback and and the impact it has on learning. And, and I found that uh, in my 19 going on 20 years uh, being an educator, and um, over uh, 15 years as a school leader that often teachers struggle with providing effective, specific, and targeted uh, feedback. So so if you could expand a little bit, is there a specific, I know there are different models, there are specific models, protocols that you have found that, um, that, that can really aid teachers in providing more specific feedback and helping students use the feedback to ultimately improve learning? Yeah, well, if we can divide feedback into two two types of feedback really quickly, this might be helpful. Um, you can give individualized, personalized feedback to students, and you can give what we could call whole class feedback. Now, most people will appreciate that when you personalize feedback, it uh, it it tailors it to the learner in front of you. The learner might be uh, sort of lower on the academic. Uh, uh, spectrum and you can you can target it directly to their skills. A higher learner, you can extend their learner. That's all true. I'm not here to say the personalizing feedback is bad, but we 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 do have to admit when we talk about personalization, we have 30 students. So if I meet with one student and then I meet with another, and each of those is five minutes, five, 10, 15, 20, <laughs> after a bit of of conferencing, you start to find that you're stretched thin, you're not giving as great of feedback, your feedback is untimely sometimes, it's too late or it's too early. So, and what are what is everyone else doing while you're doing these little conferences, right? Uh, in, in some schools, this is a great time to mess around, to bully others, to, to sneak our phone underneath our table <laughs> and a bunch of other things, right? So if we look at that whole class feedback, I, I'd love to share some tips on this because I wish this were the new trend in feedback in education, which is we can give the whole class in that tier one situation, we can give a whole class three points of feedback 
that most students in the class deserve to hear, right? Maybe not everyone, but they could benefit from hearing that whole class feedback. And so teachers should personalize feedback. They should get out books and mark some stuff, right? But you can increase your the amount of feedback you give and you can make it so that most kids are paying attention to it and it applies to most kids by delivering a whole class. Uh, one is to take a, someone's work and to live market, you know, with the student's permission, live market in front of the whole class. Everybody goes, oh yeah, I did the same thing. And you're pointing out, see how I noticed other people's work did the same thing. Another one is strategic sampling. So I take three books from my class. I go strategically, that's a low, that's a medium, that's a high. I take those three books at home and I look over them and I make a bunch of notes. And tomorrow's lesson is based around those three books. And I'm basically going to give feedback to the whole class around things I saw from those three books. And finally, another one I would say is front-loading feedback, like doing front-end feedback, feedback before the kids even do it. Predict, because you're a subject expert, predict what most kids tend to do wrong and tell them, hey, most kids tend to do this. This is what you should do instead. That way you're preventing <laughs> situations where you need to intervene. You're kind of putting out fires before they happen. So if those are helpful, I hope they are. But that's kind of that's kind of a lot of what I think is important about increasing feedback and improving the amount of the intake of feedback in your class. I, I think that that is extremely invaluable. You know, I also, like you just said, examples that you talked about, giving them samples, taking one, one or two students um, paper and with their permission, obviously, and and providing that live feedback that it, that that is really applicable and can be applied across the whole classroom becomes uh, very critical. And and for those writing assignment using rubrics and like you just say, front loading by sharing those type of uh, front loading with the with a rubric, well written rubric, um, the expectation to look for us, uh, becomes very very important because then students know uh, what what the assignment about, what what are the exemplars if you have if you have if you provide those, so that that becomes cr crucial and very important. Now, the audience uh, for my listeners um, are emerging and current school leaders. Often when I say emerging, they, sometimes they are coaches looking to move into administration or current uh, uh, assistant or principals who are looking to either move up or um, become better experts in their uh, in their in their specific practice in their specific school. How can school leaders and principals support teachers who want to lead beyond the classroom as instructional leaders? Maybe they don't want to be, go to administration, but maybe they want to go district wide, or they're in the classroom. They want to become a coach, or their coach maybe they are ready now to uh, maybe become a district coach or state coach. How can teach? How can school leaders support them? Right. Well, I know what my I know what my leadership did, right? And that's what they 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 raised my voice. They raised my profile. They centered some of the things I was saying. Right. Uh, I was working at a school in which we were going to adopt a new literacy uh, curriculum, and a lot of stuff coming out. I'm sure some of the listeners have heard sold a story and and heard about the reading wars. But this was sort of before maybe five years ago. So the, the, the podcast, you know, Soda Story wasn't out and a bunch of this stuff wasn't in uh, on our radar nearly as much. But the principal knew from talking to me, he knew that I was into research. He knows my computer's full of this stuff. So he came to me and he said, I just need you to really facilitate 
this this adoption. I want you to find uh, some research and I want you to work with the other people in this crew because we really can't go to a whole language model <laughs> at this school. And I know that that's kind of uh, popular amongst some of the people on the committee. I need you to sort of raise the points. I need you to do some of that research. And when I when I heard that, I'm like, wait, I'm just a like I'm just a teacher. Like why, you know? But it I feel like it makes people feel empowered and it makes them start to consider future possibilities. When I got into that sort of facilitation role, I realized that uh, uh, at least it felt from the feedback they gave me that I wasn't treading, you know, stomping on toes. I wasn't hurting people's feelings. I felt really successful. And it's sort of when you feel that success, you say like, right, I, that's the type of leader you want. You want someone who didn't just become an instructional coach because they were tired of managing behavior or whatever else. You want someone who felt successful with their student teachers, who's really good at leading committees, <laughs> who, who is, who's out there, who's involved, who's excited about teaching uh, and, and find those people and raise their profile and raise their voice. Cause that, thank you, Adam Dodge of Nanjing International School, my principal who did that for me. And I never looked back. I think that's awesome to, to, to find those um, teachers and put them over committees, put them over uh, different um, subcommittees or committees, whether it's at the school school level, whether it's at the district level, elevate and scale up their voice and empower them to really lead as experts that they are. As we wrap up this uh, interview, and thank you for coming on, I've, I've really learned a lot. Uh, share with us your favorite book or quote and why. Well, uh, I mentioned uh, Daniel Willingham's book, uh, Why Don't Students Like School? It explains chapter by chapter uh, the, the 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 mechanisms we have in our mind, but not in a very neurosciencey sort of chemical way in which we're talking about the uh, myelination and uh, and synapses and things like that. Really concrete examples of how uh, information needs to be presented and retained, and so on. And one of the quotes I like there is that memory is the residue of thought. And that's that when we, what students remember is what they think about. And so much of our instruction uh, distracts them away from what they're thinking about, maybe diverts them or entertains them in a way or overwhelms them. And they're thinking about their struggle. They're thinking about their failure, where if they're thinking about the things you want them to teach, the memory is the residue of thought. What will, what will, what will stick in mind are the things that they really were considering and processing and thinking about. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. Tell everyone listening how they can connect with you. Right. Go to educationrickshaw.com. It's a funny name, but it, it, it's it's a funny website. There you'll see my podcast and my blogs and my and my guests. Uh, that, that, you know, I, I do a lot of projects on there. Educationrickshaw.com. You can contact me through there if you want to work with me on something. And Progressively Incorrect is my podcast. You know, great guests are coming on all the time. I hope you come on sometime, Gastrid. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I'm on Twitter and you can see me uh, battling it out uh, there. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, coming on. And I, I do recommend... Uh, we've connected through um, Twitter and your website, your blog has plethora of information. Your podcast is awesome. So to all of our 
coaches and instructional leaders and, and current leaders that are listening, definitely um, check out his website, check out his uh, podcast. You definitely will. It will definitely, it's very informative and, and you will definitely uh, gain a lot uh, from his website and podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. Please consider subscribing to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and a comment. Share this episode with a friend and on social media. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for leadership ideas and tips. Again, thank you for joining me today. Until next time.